investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to episode 32 of the Absolute Return Podcast. This is September 19th, 2019. I am your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. We have a number of interesting events that happened in the markets this week that we're going to talk about in uh, pretty good detail. Firstly, we're going to talk about a big real estate M&A transaction with Blackstone acquiring Canadian Real Estate Investment Trust, Dream Global, in a 6.2 billion dollar deal. We're going to chat about what makes this deal specifically so interesting. Really, really interesting news in the oil and energy space with a big attack last Sunday on Saudi oil infrastructure, with which took out 5% of global production. What are the major implications of this? We're going to chat about WeWork a little bit more and how they delayed their highly con- controversial IPO. Why did this deal flop? Also going to talk about the Fed cutting rates this week. And they even did that as unemployment is near an all-time low and the stock market is near an all-time high. Why were some of the Fed members against this rate cut? And lastly, we're going to have a discussion of the great short squeeze of 2019. Want to get to some M&A news, some merger and acquisition activity in the real estate sector with Blackstone, the big private equity firm. They announced the friendly acquisition of Canadian real estate investment trust Dream Global in a $6.2 billion deal inclusive of debt. Now this deal represented a premium of about 18.5% above Dream Global REIT's unaffected share price. Some background on Dream Global, they own a high quality and diversified portfolio of office and logistic assets, primarily in Western Europe, and they've assembled this asset base over the past eight years. So they're a relatively new company formed after the uh, global financial crisis. This real estate trust, it was formerly known as Dundee International REIT. It started out by acquiring properties leased to Deutsche Post in Germany, and this was Germany's post office. And over time, they grew to focus on properties primarily based in Germany and the Netherlands. This isn't Blackstone's first foray into Canadian REITs. In early 2018, the private equity firm acquired a pure industrial REIT, another publicly traded uh, Canadian real estate investment trust. This one owned industrial properties across Canada and select US markets, whose tenants included IKEA distribution services and FedEx. Wanted to touch on valuation. They acquired a Dream Global for a slight premium to net asset value, I believe about 15 and a half times funds flow and close to 18 times adjusted funds flow, which is really pretty average multiples in terms of takeovers in the REIT space. I believe the cap rate, the capitalization rate was roughly 7%, which is the net operating income over the total enterprise value. Looking at it from a merger arbitrager's perspective, now this stock, Dream Global stock, will trade at a discount 
to the takeover price. So there'll be a merger spread there, which accounts for the risk of the deal not closing. Now this spread is at a roughly 6% annualized yield, which implies a 92% chance of success. So in my opinion, that's a relatively attractive merger arbitrage spread. I view this as a pretty low risk deal with a high chance of closing. I think 92% chance of closing misprices it deserves to be higher and the yield should probably be lower. So a decent chance for merger arbitragers to get into this one. Some background on uh, the parent company and ultimately the entrepreneur behind Dream, which encapsulates a number of entities. Dream Global Rate was just one of them started by Michael Cooper, who's the CEO of Dream Unlimited, who actually had a management agreement. They effectively managed Dream Global Rate. It was externally managed by Dream Unlimited. There's a really interesting quote from Dream Unlimited CEO Michael Cooper stated that public companies are not trading well enough to issue equity to buy, buy assets at today's market prices. And what he's saying with this quote is that with so much demand, publicly traded real estate trusts have a harder time competing for key commercial properties. And what really struck me about this quote here is he's saying, look, I'm going to get into more private market stuff because the publicly traded REITs, they're now trading at discounted valuations to private assets and where private equity and other uh, you know, private capital firms are acquiring these non-publicly traded assets, which is really interesting because historically, private assets have traded at discounts to liquid public market entities. But you have seen that relationship flip-flop over the uh, you know past number of years. It happened really, really recently. And why the implications of that are so great is typically the main pitch for private market investing was the so-called illiquidity premium, which refers to the premium return that you would own for or that you would earn for owning private market assets. But the reason that you in fact earn that premium return is that you were able to buy these assets at a discounted multiple. And that's effectively where this illiquidity premium comes from, the discounted valuation in which you could historically buy private market assets. Now that relationship has flipped where private market assets are actually trading at a premium to public market real estate entities. And we see that in other private businesses as well. It's a really interesting dynamic. What are your thoughts on this big Blackstone acquisition here? Yeah, so first of all, I just wanted to go back with something that you brought up being the external management agreement. So Blackstone it will actually pay Dream Unlimited uh, $395 million to end the contract, um, which is when you think about it, you know, over 10% of the actual deal value in, in cash. So it, these are very material contracts and very profitable for Dream Unlimited. And I do believe they do have another one for Dream Industrial. Certainly, and that management agreement would include an annual management fee just for managing the uh, trust. In addition to, they earn additional fees such as uh, acquisition fees. If they you know, buy more properties, they'll take, typically take a cut of that as well. So it's a relatively lucrative fee and that's why Dream Unlimited, the manager, is earning hundreds of millions of dollars by selling it. Absolutely, and so why I wanted to bring that up is when you'd mentioned the 
you know, relatively high cost of capital for these public REITs versus some of their private comparables is that before the acquisition, Dream Global was trading at about a 15% discount to their NAV. So like you mentioned, it just makes it very difficult for them to issue shares when you're trading below NAV mm -hmm. and just makes you less competitive in the market for acquiring new properties. Now, that's actually a lot less of a discount than uh, their parent company, Dream Unlimited, is, is trading at. So COUC pointed out um, recently that they've traded at an average 47% discount to NAV over the last four years hmm. and have traded at as much of a 60% discount. And really what their NAV is, is mostly holdings in some of these REITs that you had mentioned. So right. Dream Industrial, Dream Global. So these are publicly liquid positions that they have for the most part in their portfolio, as well as these management contracts. So it, it is quite interesting that they would trade at such a large discount. And, you know, it is understandable why there is some frustration when trading at such a discount when you look at your private market players that don't have quite as much of that issue. Right. And it's not so much of a discount anymore because I believe Dream Unlimited stock rallied north of 20% on this deal. They also now have a big chunk of cash with a few hundred million coming into the treasury from selling this management contract. So certainly very good lucrative deal for Dream Unlimited and uh, Dream Global Reach shareholders getting a slight premium to NAV. They got to be happy about that. But I just wanted to you know, reiterate the really interesting dynamic that we continue to see on the divergence between private and public market assets where that relationship is flipped on its head. You're seeing premium valuations for private market assets, really how money is just flooded the space. And the reason I think that money has flooded the space is due to their mark to model accounting. In the private sector or private market assets, they effectively mark their assets on a quarterly basis based on valuations and they can effectively you know, make it whatever they want. So ultimately, uh, investors get to be oblivious to the daily mark-to-market swings. And that freaks a lot of investors out in the public markets is having all that much volatility. It really scares people. So in the private markets, investors get to be oblivious to that, pretend like it's not there because their assets aren't getting mark-to-market every day, but they are still incredibly volatile. It's just like, you own a house, no one's telling you, you know, different bids and offers on your house each day, how it's swinging around in value, which theoretically it could be if you had it as a marketable asset. But as a private, uh, private entity, you can just be uh, oblivious to that. And it has the effect of sort of artificially smoothing returns, which unfortunately public markets don't get public markets get to deal with uh, you know the daily mark to market of thousands or tens of thousands of investors putting on their independent views of those positions so it's a really interesting dynamic that investors should uh, should take into account and the other thing that I wanted to mention cool fun fact about Blackstone is they're actually the largest real estate owner in the world Absolutely. And one last thing with, with regards to the daily volatility that uh, you see in public markets is the Dream Global REIT investors ha actually have been rewarded with that volatility as over the last five years, they've compounded at an 8% or 18% annualized rate. So very healthy returns if you can smooth out the day-to-day. 
Right. Interesting geopolitical news in the energy space. With a big attack on Saudi oil infrastructure, this actually took about 5% of global production offline. Oil prices soared on the news. Sunday night, they're up as much as 20%. Brent crude futures after these attacks on key oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, and it took out roughly 5.7 million barrels of oil production. This was actually the biggest jump in oil prices since 1990, which would have been, uh, you know, the Gulf War when Iran, uh, or, or sorry, Iraq, um, you know, there's that war going on there. So uh, what happened was uh, there was actually a drone attack on an oil processing facility and an oil field, uh, which really disrupted pretty much half of Saudi Arabia's oil production. 5% of global supply, which was obviously a massive shock to the system, which is why we saw oil prices rally so much. However, Oil gave back about half of its gains this week. As the Saudis indicated, they would have production restored by month end. I believe that they already restored about 50% of lost production. So they're on this pretty quick. And, um, you know, I saw pictures of the, the damage. It doesn't look like it's too extensive. You know, they had some uh, small missile attacks on some of their infrastructure there. Nonetheless, the U.S. has blamed Iran for the attack. Some Houthi militias in Yemen have claimed responsibility for it and Iran has actually denied any involvement. Interesting quote from a gentleman named Andy Hall and Andy Hall is actually one of the most successful oil traders of all time. Uh, he's former hedge fund manager. Prior to that, uh, the firm he worked at, he was infamous for earning a $100 million bonus in one year from his successful trades. He stated, this attack underscores the vulnerability of oil production facilities in the Middle East. It would seem the oil market needs to not only price in the current supply loss, but also a higher risk premium for the future. So an Unabashed bull, Andy Hall thinks prices are going higher. Uh, another interesting aspect to this is these attacks came as uh, the state-owned Saudi Arabian Oil Co., known as Aramco, is pursuing an IPO, an initial public offering. They're hoping to raise as much as $100 billion, which would be the biggest IPO ever. Uh, some people thought that with this attack on their oil infrastructure, this would you know, take them out of the market, but no, they still plan on pushing forward with this IPO, uh, some price action on this rally in oil prices, although pretty much half of it has been given back. Oil stocks did rally quite a bit. I saw a number up double digits. Uh, what are your thoughts on interesting news in the energy sector here? Yeah, the other interesting stat that, that I saw about this, this issue was that the proce processing center that was attacked actually prepares 70% of the Saudi crude oil for export, which is quite an interesting stat. But, you know, really, these the Saudis, they had indicated that even in the short term, even though they'll be able to bring the uh, supply on by month end, that they had indicated that they would be willing to um, supply the shortfall from their oil storage as well as bring some spare production on stream um, just to maintain exports. So they really were able to come in and really calm the markets. Like you had mentioned, um, there was extreme volatility over the weekend, but really half those gains 
games have been given back since. Um, so I really, you know, personally just kind of see this as a short-term supply issue, nothing that's going to change the demand side of the equation. Um, so really anything in terms of something like that, it's just going to be short-lived, uh, really isn't going to be sustainable either way. Right, right. And you're already seeing a supply response. Uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney indicating that the province of Alberta will allow production to be increased with this. And the other really um, interesting aspect that investors need to consider is that Saudi, they're not necessarily the swing producer anymore. That baton has been handed off to the U.S. with the advent of shale production. I mean, U.S. oil production has risen by, let's call it, four to five million barrels per day to north of 10 million barrels per day with the emergence of shale oil. Like the Permian oil field in Texas is producing just tons of oil. They have so much oil. West Texas Intermediate continues to trade at a big discount to uh, Brent Oil, the big uh, global benchmark. So there really is a glut of oil in North America, and it's been like that for a while. These shale oil guys in U.S. can put production online fairly quickly. So I'm not too concerned about the supply response. As we discussed, we expect the Saudi supply. They indicated it's going to come back online within a couple weeks. So bottom line for me, my advice is to fade this rally I think that uh, it's coming back down to pretty much where it was initially so if you're holding any of these energy stocks that have rallied probably a good idea to take some profits on those or if you're you don't have profits and take the take the tax loss continuing our discussion of WeWork the office leasing company we have discussed them and their controversial proposed IPO on the podcast before. So what happened recently is that WeWork has actually delayed its initial public offering after suffering muted investor demand amidst a pushback over numerous corporate governance issues, which we've touched on in the past, in addition to questions regarding the sustainability of its business model. We've chatted about this before. They're growing revenue very, very rapidly, but their losses are really spiraling out of control. Now, WeWork was pursuing a valuation in their IPO rumored to be as low, or they dropped it down to as low as 10 to 15 billion, which was really a massive discount to its last financing round, which was at a 47 billion valuation. When this IPO news initially started to come out a few months ago, investment banks were initially pitching a 65 billion dollar valuation so that's dropped uh, about 80 percent which is frankly quite stunning but WeWork ultimately pulled the IPO or they're indicating that it is delayed for now after facing pressure from its largest shareholder SoftBank. Uh, this share sale was expected to raise at least $3 billion in equity and also trigger a $6 billion loan package. So WeWork is now going to have to go hat in hand to investors because they expected to find $9 billion from this initial public offering, which now is off the table. But one possible source of new funding is SoftBank, which is WeWork's largest investor. They're actually planning on investing $750 million more as part of the IPO, which would have been over 20%, and they still couldn't sell it, which was uh, quite shocking to me, but it really shows how skeptical investors are of this deal. 
Interesting to note that SoftBank and its Saudi Arabia-backed Vision Fund, they've already invested over $10 billion in WeWork and they own 30-something percent. And if WeWork is gonna be valued at 10 billion, then there's a massive destruction of capital there. Nonetheless, uh, WeWork indicating that it expects to IPO to, uh, to go ahead by the end of 2019. Uh, just a comment on the IPO window. I mean, it's still wide open. It's really just a banner year for IPOs. We saw a lot of high profile IPOs such as Uber and Lyft, which has re really stumbled out of the gate. We saw a bad one uh, last week being a Smile Direct, which tanked, I believe, 28% on its first day. We've had uh, Slack with uninspiring trading. Um, so interesting dynamics in the IPO market. A lot of deals coming out. Uh, many not so successful, though. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, so there are plans to delay it till the end of the year. Uh, I really don't know what is going to change in terms of investors analysis of the company or overall sentiment towards WeWork that would result in their valuation being increased materially. So I really don't know how successful that would be. Um, some other points, just, you know, it, the ramifications of this WeWork IPO delay is their bonds ended up selling off on the news of the delayed IPO. They're now trading below par. Yeah, down 5%. Yeah, on which is, which is a happy. big move for corporate bonds, sure. uh, 5% is, is a very large move. Um, I believe their yields are in the high single digits now. The other interesting price action is now private market investors can no longer market at 47 billion. It's actually significantly lower than that, but uh, the beauty of private market valuations is they tend to be updated quite slowly. Absolutely. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was you did bring up Masayoshi Sun in the uh, in SoftBank's Vision Fund. And so one interesting thing with Sun's ownership with SoftBank is that he's actually pledged 38% of his equity ownership in SoftBank as collateral for personal loans. Um, for liquidity for his personal life and other investments outside of SoftBank. But the issue with that is that if their stock, which is publicly traded, if their stock goes down significantly, he is at risk for margin calls. Um, he also does have a leverage stake in the Vision Fund along with a number of employees at SoftBank. Right, and a margin call would entail banks selling out the stock as it drops uh, as security for the loan. Effectively, he has to repay it if the stock drops a certain amount and he repays it by selling it. Absolutely. And just so in terms of context of the 38% that is pledged towards uh, pledged as collateral for personal loans is typically you see that when that is a tactic used by CEOs or founders. It's typically in the single digit range, but there are some other examples of uh, founders that have used a very high degree um, of leverage on their personal loan side using their shares as collateral. And that would be Larry Ellison of Oracle who used 20, I believe he has 27% of his equity stake pledged as collateral and Elon Musk of Tesla who has 40% of his stake in Tesla pledged as collateral. 
Yeah, the other interesting aspect is WeWork's CEO. He actually has a margin loan on his private market shares of close to, I believe it's over $300 million. Obviously, the banks are very, very concerned about that now with a massive drop in valuations. So that will be a really interesting one to watch there. Absolutely. And just in terms of the dynamics, too, is who wants what in this situation is the banks are both the underwriters. It's the same banks are the underwriters for the potential IPO are also creditors to to uh, WeWork as well as equity investors. But really, they've been doing these loans at a price range that really is quite favorable for the company. And where they're really going to get their payback on investment is this IPO, both in terms of you know, all of the glamour that goes with underwriting such a large IPO, as well as the fees. And so that is why the banks are really pushing them towards this IPO. As expected, the Federal Reserve cut its Fed funds rate this week by a quarter point, 0.25%, putting it in the range of 1.75 to 2%. This was its second interest rate cut this year in as many months. This was really in line with expectations, what the market was expecting. Uh, But the central bank's projections, they come out with this so-called dot plot, which shows uh, their forward projections for interest rates. This indicated a more hawkish stance than markets anticipated. The median forecast amongst its rate setting committee was that rates would be at the same level at the end of 2020 as they are now, which is a big divergence between what the market's thinking because futures are pricing in rates probably 50 basis points lower. So futures are really expecting two more uh, rate cuts to happen uh, over the next year or so, but the FOMC members thus far not putting that out there. These dot plot forecasts from all 17 policymakers showed even broader disagreement. So there are seven expecting a third rate cut, five seeing this as being sufficient, no more rate cuts in 2019, and five who are against the rate cut. We're seeing interesting implications in the futures market. Now the market's pricing in a 45% chance of another rate cut next month in October. Now this was up from 41% prior to this week's rate cut decision, but the odds of a December rate cut after that have really collapsed. I mean, about a month ago, it was a coin flip near 50% chance. That's down to almost 10%. So more rate cuts getting priced out of the market. Ultimately, the biggest news behind this rate cut, I mean, the rate cut was consensus. Everyone really expected this 25 basis point cut, but, The big news here is that most policymakers at the Federal Reserve don't expect to cut rates further this year, which is in stark contrast to what the market's thinking, at least one or two more for 2019. So it's an interesting dichotomy there. What are your thoughts on this recent Fed action? Yeah, and there's also, I think you had mentioned some of the dissenting opinions, but this, there was actually, the the vote was approved seven to three, three dissenting opinions, which is the most in the last three years. So there is just no clear cut track of the way that the Fed is going to move 
you know, moving forward. As you'd mentioned, I would also agree, it's, it, it was the consensus move um, where it really is unclear is just how they're going to, to play this moving forward as I really don't have a crystal ball in this situation of how this is going to work out. Yeah, they indicate that they're data dependent and their dual mandate is maximum employment and unemployment rate is near uh, an all-time low, what, 3.7%, and then uh, stable pricing. And I believe CPI last was, what, 2.1%, so slightly above their target. So if they're truly data dependent, they will not be cutting rates here. It's just that they're really freaked out about the trade war, about the global slowdown, uh, you got Trump breathing down their neck, and even after this, Trump was highly critical. The, the president's calling for zero rates or even negative rates. Um, so Trump's really bashing them, putting maximum pressure on the Fed here. So I actually, you know, think that there's a lot of merit to the Federal Reserve members who opted for no cut because if they truly are data dependent, then there would be no rate cut. However, we always joke that there is a third Fed mandate, which is S&P 500 targeting. It's typically under the guise of, quote, uh, financial conditions, but by financial conditions that they do refer to, they're really talking about stock market returns. They want to see a strong stock market. So I think that ultimately they're trying to juice the market to new all-time highs, which it is in very uh, close range. Uh, some price action here, you saw bonds drop, yield on the 10-year note climb from 1.75% to 1.79%. And as listeners know, bond yields and prices move in opposite directions. So yields climbing, bond prices falling. The Dow Jones is up 100 points or 0.4%. S&P 500 up the same. And the NASDAQ up by 0.7% on the news put out a blog post this week that I wanted to touch on. It's part of our new series called Live from the Trading Desk. This one is entitled The Great Short Squeeze of 2019. Really just wanted to comment on some of the price action in early September, specifically the first seven trading days between September 1st and the 11th. And most people probably didn't notice this because markets overlooking kind of the broad market indices were quite calm. The S&P 500 was up 2.6%. The TSX Composite up about 1%. The VIX, the volatility index was relatively tepid, but there are like pretty wild swings underneath, basically dealing with momentum stocks. Now there's such thing as a momentum factor. Basically, you're betting that stocks that have been performing well, that have been going up, will continue to go up and vice versa. Stocks with poor momentum or that have been going down, you expect to further go down. So you can put together a long, short portfolio, long highest momentum stocks, short lowest momentum stocks, and you've done well over time, except in early September. Through September 9th and 10th, this, this strategy, long short momentum, had the worst return, worst two day return on record, dropping more than 8%, which is a pretty wild swing in the midst of a calm market and indices going up. If you look at the Russell 1000 and look at the top six stocks year to date, they actually had massive downward moves of a 10% drop just on September 9th. Companies like Market Access, Roku, Coupa Software. Then you look at the 
bottom half dozen performers of the Russell 1000 over the past year, stocks that have been absolutely crushed. They had a massive rally on September 9th, up on average 10%. You had companies like Range Resources and Antero Resources. And this was extra strange because there really was no direct catalyst for this move of how you know high quality great stocks that have been performing well they really just got they got canned they tanked um, by massive amounts from the first through the 11th of september but really that was focused in september 9th and 10th not only that but on the other side uh, stocks that hedge funds would be short the one seemingly headed to zero staged a massive dead cat bounce or rally off the lows of the double digits. So if you are a short seller or a long short fund, you faced some significant pain. Now I wanted to contrast historical returns of this momentum strategy. Historically, uh, the top 10% best momentum stocks over the past 20 years have compounded at roughly 12% annually. That's 12% annual gains for the best momentum stocks, while the worst momentum stocks have actually lost 2% per year. However, for the first seven trading days of September, you saw this relationship completely reverse and then some. The best uh, top decile or the best 10% momentum stocks actually dropped by 1% over these seven trading sessions. And to really, really make it painful for short sellers, the worst momentum stocks, the worst 10% actually rallied about 19%, making that long short return, which you expect to do well over time, that dropped 20% over seven trading sessions. And historically that spread between the best momentum and the worst momentum stocks was 14% per year. So not only did you not get the positive 14%, but you got a 20% loss uh, in roughly a week, which was certainly a pretty, uh, you know, outstanding and painful thing to go through as a long, short hedge fund. The other interesting aspect is typically uh, the value factor where you're betting on cheap stocks and betting against expensive stocks. This is typically negatively correlated with momentum, i.e. when momentum is suffering, typically the value factor makes up for it. Now, uh, commenting on this September price action, cheap stocks actually did very well, but unfortunately so did very, very expensive stocks, negating the entire effect of this value factor. So it didn't help investors at all multi-factor investors suffering uh, from basically no performance contribution from the value factor which you expect could bail you out when momentum is really going against you but in summary there's a really fascinating dichotomy in investing that's inherent Effectively, to have attractive long-term performance, a strategy is actually required to have short-term downturns that spook investors away because this is necessary. If you think about it, if this strategy worked all the time, every investor would do it and paradoxically, it would cease to work because everyone, if everyone knows something is going to happen, then you know, it won't happen because that's how betting markets like the stock market ultimately work. So I just wanted to summarize that vicious short squeeze for investors and the pain that long short investors did in fact take in early September. But I wanted to contrast that with, you know, great expected returns over the long term, but nonetheless with great long term returns 
come the occasional short-term pain. Absolutely. And in, in terms of the momentum factor, um, just on its own, it, it's something that kind of brings up the point of the difficulty of just running a fund using the momentum factor. And it really would provide support for that multi, multi-strategy approach when building an actual fund. Oh, right. It's way too volatile to run a single factor long short fund. As we saw early September, momentum just getting crushed uh, to the tune of negative 20%. And the real benefit of having um, uncorrelated factors is it really helps mitigate that damage. And I always like to make the analogy to that old cartoon character Voltron, where, you know, many of these kind of superhero beasts each on their own are pretty powerful, but then they form this uh, Ultra Beast Voltron, which can really uh, kick ass far more than any one of them could on their own. Absolutely. And and just to tie up a loose end from about a month ago, I think we were talking about Patrick Byrne from Overstock. And so there, there's been a few interesting things happening in that stock. Do you want to go over a little bit of that? Right. And so this was one of the prime candidates of what we're calling the great short squeeze of 2019, which really encapsulated many, many what we call junk stocks, low quality stocks that are seemingly circling the drain, heading to zero, overstock actually being one of them. I don't believe we have a position in that. However, what Patrick Byrne did is he uh, engineered a massive short squeeze by issuing a cryptocurrency dividend in which uh, short sellers couldn't cover uh, they, when you're short a stock and it issues a dividend, you have to pay out that dividend to the party in which you borrowed the shares from. However, this cryptocurrency is currently unavailable and this effectively forced short sellers of overstock shares to cover, which caused a massive uh, short squeeze, a massive rally in the shares. They rallied north of 100%, I believe, to around that, from around the $10 range to as high as 26 bucks per share. And to make it worse, he actually went out and sold all of his shares, his entire 13.6% stake in Overstock.com into this short squeeze. So real kind of scummy behavior, in my opinion. And uh, certainly the SEC is not liking that engineered short squeeze, especially when the now ex-CEO sells his entire stake into it. And that's it, ladies and gents, for episode 32 of the Absolute Return Podcast. As always, you can check out more on absolutereturnpodcast.com. If you like it, please leave us a rating. Tell your friends, your coworkers. But that's it for us for this week. We will chat with you on the next one. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.